Well, open your Bibles now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, while you're turning there, I'm going to do something that's a little different. I did it during our last uh, sermon, and I'll do it today, and I'll probably do it next week as well, which is give a bit of a disclaimer. I, I don't want to apologize for anything that God's Word ever says or that we preach on, but if you're a guest with us today, you might show up today and think, what are these people about? This is a strange thing. I came to church, and they were talking about clothing, specifically women's clothing. Who are these people at Mission Road Bible Church? Let me give you a little history. We've been working our way through Romans for four years now, and we found ourselves at really the biggest break in the book, in between chapter 11 and chapter 12, which has allowed me to, to address a few things. We talked about uh, a Christian's contrarian view of, of uh, politics a few weeks ago, and I'm talking for a few weeks here on modesty, and let me tell you why and what this is about. Uh, we've been talking about, as a leadership team, uh, addressing this issue for, for several years, but there, there wasn't a place to really pull a car over in, in um, our, our series to do that. And when we saw that there was a break, um, we, we just decided that this was the right time to address this. And the reason is that we have noticed and seen things, people have noticed and seen things, not only in our, our church sometimes, but notice things in uh, uh, culture that are going directions that we can't contextualize or understand biblically. And so our world is going immodest. And God's word has specific things to say about this, and we want to address that. Last week, we talked about a theology for clothing. Where did clothes even come from? This week, we're going to look at the, the, the two passages briefly that address Christian modesty in clothing and next week, we're going to talk about the implications. You know, what can I, should I wear? And I can't tell you everything, but we can certainly draw some principles from God's Word that will inform us. This passage here in 1 Timothy is specific to the church. Remember what Paul is doing. He's addressing young Timothy, who has now taken the mantle of pastoral leadership at the church in Ephesus that Paul founded. He hands it over the, to um, uh, Timothy, and he goes on to be a missionary. Well, he writes to Timothy to tell him how to give leadership in the church, intending for the church to hear exactly what Paul was writing to Timothy so that they could not only be held accountable, but they could hold their pastors accountable for what God's word said, for what Paul had instructed them. So there was a sense in which the Ephesian church read this and expected the pastors to hold them accountable to that. Well, it's certainly the case with us as well today. Let me read just... Um, I want to read the chapter for you because the whole thing is discussing Christian worship and the meetings when we come together. Some familiar words, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to dive down and drill down into what God says about modesty here in the middle of this text. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of, of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, a man, the man, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and set as an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. 
Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach, in the context here is to take the authority from a man, to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That's in reference to teaching. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. For it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I can identify with an author named Jeff Pollard who wrote this about preachers and modesty. He said, not, I guess not preachers and their modesty, but preachers preaching on modesty. Modesty is a controversial issue. No matter how the man of God approaches this subject, he will be judged either as a legalist or libertarian by his audience. It's inescapable. Speaking against culture, current fashion and popular trends is always difficult and costly for the preacher. I'm very aware of that this morning because my fear is last time, this time, and next time, people could walk away thinking that I or we're being legalistic. You have to wear this, you can't wear that, and these are the rules of the church. And that's not where we want to be. The other side is to be a libertarian where you can do whatever you want and it doesn't matter. The truth and application implication of this text is somewhere in between, rooted in wisdom and godliness. It would be irresponsible of me to not address this because it's in God's word. Irresponsible of our leadership and our youth leaders to talk about this because it's in God's word. And there's not one verse in God's holy book that is not worthy of our attention and worthy of sermonic attention, right? We're living in an unprecedented time and culture and society and history. The fashion industry continually tutors the ladies in our culture and especially the young women in our culture to strip down as much as possible. Literally to strip down to as little as possible. A few times in our church we've had uh, Kent Hughes, a good friend, dear brother in the Lord, a prolific author and commentator on God's word, his wife, Barbara Hughes, wrote this about the lack of modesty in our culture. She said, if you are blind or from another planet, you may conceivably have missed out on the fact that modesty has disappeared. It is dead and buried. If you don't think so, go shopping with a teenager. The fashion gurus have made sure that every item of clothing today's teen girls might need was designed to provoke thoughts that are other than virginal. It calls to mind the prophet Jeremiah's exclamation, Jeremiah 6.15. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush, end quote. Her husband, in a similar fashion, Kent Hughes, identifies several sources that I found helpful uh, that fuel immodesty in our culture. He gives a few. Let me, let me list those for you. The first is the fashion industry. 
He says, advertisements show perfect bodies with form-fitting clothing, clothes to accent the body and highlight the clothing to be bought. Even, this is funny, even the sizing has been changed. What is now labeled as a large is the equivalent to what was once a small, so no one wants to wear a large, so guess what? You're wearing a small. The body industry, he says, the body business lives on the pro- promotion of the myth that you can, cannot be happy without the body you desire. And you can have the body you want through diet and exercise. The beauty industry. <laughs> the beauty industry feeds on insecurities selling implants, liposuction, plastic surgeries, collagen injections, drugs, and every other kind of lipstick, eyeshadow, shampoo, dye, emollient, I don't even know what an emollient is, cream, soap, cleanser, enhancer, perfume, conditioner, and exfoliant, that sounds painful, anything that the commercial mind can imagine. But he regroups it all together and says, in the end, it's, in the end, it's sin's industry. Because we are naturally lovers of self rather than lovers of God, our flesh drags women down to greater immodesty and turns them turns men, rather, into public peeping toms, end quote. I think what Doug Phillips wrote is also helpful. Let me quote him if I can, about the accepted dress code that we all have. He says, whether you realize it or not, you and everyone else have a dress code. You will either have a dress code by design, meaning that you have thought through the moral and philosophical implications of your dress code, or you have a dress code by default because others have, de- have done the thinking for you and, have de facto, and you have de facto accepted their conclusions. But you all have a dress code. The real choice in the debate over standards of dress is not between legalism and license, but between God as lawgiver and man as lawgiver. In past centuries, Christian peoples were often noted for their modesty and the heathen peoples for their immodesty. Today, the line between professing Christians and the savage tribesmen has become increasingly blurred as more and more Christian people resort not only to the pagan practices of scarification, tattoos, and body mutilation, but have also thrown off all restraints of modest dress in favor of the trendy and physically revealing. The result is that modern America has been publicly undressed. What is worse, Americans have come to think of nakedness as normal and acceptable, even preferable. Now, we'll get into this next week, but I found it difficult in the last month to even watch certain Olympic games. Certain events where the women were so scantily dressed, it was impossible not to notice that they were scantily dressed. And I have to admit, several times I had to turn the television off. Not because I'm so strong and so great, but because I'm so weak and vulnerable. We talked about last time in uh, our study of the theology of clothing that what you wear is actually an externalization of what you believe. Said another way, you're wearing your theology right now. You will wear your theology this afternoon. You will wear your theology to work or school tomorrow. You are always wearing an expression of what you believe about the priceless, precious sacrifice of Jesus who what? 
bought us with a price. So we are, in a sense, every time we put on clothes, we are dressing Jesus' body. You say, well, this is not his body. It's his body by possession. He, Romans, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 6, he bought us with a price. And what was that price? We read it today. The crucifixion. Modesty then, dressing modestly, and modesty might not mean what you think it means. We'll get, see that in a moment. Is a demonstration of Christian character, both for men and for women. How you dress should make the same profession that your lips do. Now, I know we've read a few quotes here that say it's such a contemporary issue, it's a problem, and it is. But let's go all the way back to the first generation of Christians. Chrysostom. Less than 100 years after the crucifixion, wrote this as a pastor. And what then is, a, is modest apparel, he wrote, such as covers them, the women, completely and decently, not with superfluous ornaments, for the one is decent and the other is not. What? Did you, do you approach God to pray with broidered hair and ornaments of gold? We'll talk about what that means and what it doesn't in a minute. If you have a, a, a braided hair today, don't leave please. Have you come to a ball, a dance, a marriage feast, a carnival? There are such costly things that may have been seasonal. There, here is not one of them wanted in the church. You are come to pray, to ask pardon for your sins, to plead your offenses, beseeching the Lord and hoping to render him propitious to you away with such hypocrisy. That's in the first century So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, we can't ignore it. We have to talk about it. And I want to tell you, some things, some things I'm going to say today through Paul and Peter and some things we're going to talk about next week are not going to be the most comfortable things we've ever talked about. But rarely is holiness always a comfortable thing to discuss, is it? Because what's the essence of the Christian life? You are to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow him. This is a part of self-denial. So let's dive in. I want to show you four biblical expectations for a Christian's clothing. Now, if you want to put in parentheses before you write that down, specifically in the text here, it's four biblical expectations, four expectations for a Christian woman's clothing, but the principles will apply to men as well. So I've generalized it to say a Christian, but this is specifically in the authorial intent here, speaking to women about clothing. We want to take it at face value. Four biblical expectation for a Christian woman's clothing or a Christian's clothing. This is in verses 9 and 10. Number one is this. Clothing is to demonstrate godly humility. Clothing is to demonstrate godly humility. Verse 9 begins with the word likewise. Now, Likewise means I'm going to talk to the women about what's happening in church and what you're wearing and these things in the same way that I just talk, spoke to men. So men are off the hook. We're to come holy, lifting up holy hands, ready to pray. I mean, have we? let's just have a convicting moment, men, before we, we dive into the women's part of this text. Have you come and isolated someone, brought them aside, and prayed specifically for someone in the morning? That's in This morning, that, that's part of this text. We're to come lifting up holy hands in prayer, having leadership, having understood the gospel, having prayed for kings and everyone in authority. Have we even done that coming together today? Maybe so. 
But we haven't left yet, so that's still a part of what we can do. And that's another sermon for another time, and we will get there eventually, I promise. Likewise, just as I've spoken to the men about how they are to respond and act and conduct themselves in the church, likewise, now I'm going to address women. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. The verb in verse 8 is implied, verb here rather is implied from verse 8. I command, I propose, I purpose, I want. There's no Greek uh, verb here, it's implied. Listen, just as I want the men to have a certain conduct in order, now I want the women to, to adorn themselves properly as well. Let's look at it phrase by phrase. I want women to adorn themselves. Adorn is from uh, a Greek word that you know. Cosmeto, from which we get the word cosmetics. Cosmeto is the opposite of the Greek word chaos. So he's saying, I want women to order themselves. Now that's important at the very beginning. He's not saying just come, I want you to go down to the potato factory and get this sack and cut three holes in, pull it over your head, put the arms through, and that's your adornment. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, I want them to adorn themselves, to dress themselves, to order themselves, to arrange themselves appropriately for joining God's people as they worship, and obviously that extends out beyond the walls of the church as well. Adorn themselves with what? With proper clothing. The word for proper here also derives its understanding from cosmos. Proper clothing, ordered clothing. Just like the verb adorn. It's often translated world in the, um, in the New Testament. The, the cosmos, the, the world. It's ordered because God made it in order. He made it with an order. It's the opposite of chaos, as I said. What is he talking about? The idea is that a woman chooses her clothes for church and every other occasion as well with a plan, orderly, systematically, with a great degree of reflection, consideration, and propriety. That's what he's saying. And uh, look, this, this works out differently in my own house. Uh, I'm sure it does in yours as well. My wife, who is very orderly, she'll figure out on Saturday night, okay, I'm going to wear this, and I do this, and everything's ready that night before. I get up, take a shower, get out, get a white shirt, a dark suit, and a striped tie, and go. I, I, my thought process for what I'm going to wear might last a nanosecond. Now, it probably should last longer than that, but that's another sermon altogether. The issue is adorning, ordering yourself, adorning yourself, clothing yourself, and this is Paul's picture, not mine, moving from a state of chaos to a state of order. Now, men need to do that as well. He has two words grouped together, modestly and discreetly. We're going to break those down. They, they come together to reflect attitudes about appearance. And please make note that the issue of modesty is attitudinal. It's heart issue. C.J. Mahaney is right when he says this. Any biblical discussion of modesty begins with the heart, not the hemline. He's right. So good to think that way. We need to think about what's coming out of the heart. What did we learn last time in our study of, of, um, of the theology of clothing? 
We wear our theology. What we wear reflects what we believe, what we, what we value, what we purpose. It also reveals whether or not we have self-control. Now, we're going to leak over into talking about men and two men throughout this passage, but self-control. Being sloppy is actually being immodest. We'll find that in a second. Being unattentive to your dress is being immodest. Because immodest doesn't mean just revealing nakedness. It has a greater, greater understanding than that. So let's look at it. Modestly and discreetly. Um, Idos in the Greek. It means a state of mind or attitude leaning into humility. Literally shamefacedness. We have moral sensibilities about what we're wearing, that it matters that we have self-control in what we adorn our bodies with. William Hendrickson says, it indicates a sense of shame, a shrinking from trespassing the boundaries of propriety. In other words, I would not shame myself by wearing that. But it has more than that. Modesty says more about humility than it does covering. Now, in our day, we talk about modesty as if it only means covering private parts and nakedness. And it has a great implication to that. That's absolutely true. But that's a subset of what immodesty means in in the original language and also in the original culture. Being immodest was being proud. Being modest was being humble. Modesty here, Paul wasn't thinking about women uh, wearing things that they wear in Olympics today or to the beach. He was talking, he'll get specific in a second, he was specifically talking about women wearing things that would cause other people to notice what they're wearing and think certain things about them. It wasn't always sexual in nature. Sometimes it was just, well, they have money. Well, they're of a higher class. They're a higher higher statue. has to do with being modest. Simply put, dressing modestly for men and women is to dress in a way as not to attract. And we'll talk about this next week. Dressing attractively, dressing nicely, dressing beautifully, dressing nicely is not not necessarily immodest. Jeff Pollard says this, excess and sensuality, both of these bear on modesty. uh, Christians must self-consciously control their hearts and passions instead of arraying themselves elaborately, expensively, and sensuously. If they are modest, they will not draw attention to themselves in the wrong way. This is a great sentence. Their dress will not say sex, pride, or money, but their dress will say purity, humility, and moderation. It's about humility. Dressing is a sign of pride or dressing is a sign of humility for men and women. Listen, if you're the guy who has lost 50 pounds and been to the gym and now has these bulging biceps and these triangulated triceps that you just can't imagine having worked for and no one noticed and you wear a a shirt that is three sizes too small for you to show everyone that, that's immodest. It's bragging about yourself. And if you wear skinny jeans, that's another whole sermon. (laughs) J. 
Just don't. How about that? <laughs> By the way, don't think that Paul here is talking about just dress at church in a modest way. If you can dress immodestly other places and in the church you dress modestly, that's not only a problem of modesty, that's a problem of hypocrisy. Let me say it this way. Ladies, if there are things in your closet you think, I would never wear that to church, there's a trash can in your house. Don't even pass it on at goodwill to somebody else. Why? Why? What's at issue here is the heart, and it should be consistent no matter where it's expressing itself, which it always does in the clothing. And it's just, it's men too. I don't want to overstate this. Women need to be addressed and not dressed proudly in a way to attract them. Uh, attention to themselves. I, I was informed uh, by uh, several ladies talking about this issue over the last weeks and months and years. Guys don't think this way, so just give us a break, gals, but that sometimes women dress to impress other women just in terms of look how I'm built or look what I have or look how much money I have or look that I'm in and I'm not out than they do guys. I don't know a lot of guys who do that. We're just not that sophisticated, but that's for another time as well. God intended clothes to conceal nakedness. The fashion industry intends for clothes to, clothes to reveal nakedness. And we'll be very specific about some of that next week. Number two, clothing is to communicate divine ownership in women and men as well. Clothing is to communicate divine Ownership, ownership. Look in the middle of verse nine. Let's clear up some, some, uh, some fears that you may have in your heart. Not with braided hair or gold and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, in the second half here of verse nine, Paul clarifies and he changes the argument from showing that a woman, what a woman wears, is not just noticed by others, but it also reflects something about her understanding of God. Going to bleed right into that in verse 10. Now, from the general principles in the first half of the verse, he moves to the specifics. And he gives us some list, a list here, not with braided hair. It's a term that can generally mean noticeable hairstyles. When we see braided hair, we think of, of a little girl with the, 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 the three things you go, you know, the braid thing. I don't have girls, so trust me. I'm trusting you on that. Um, and it, it, is that what he's talking about? Well, you can wear your hair anyway, but God forbid that you braid those hairs. That's not what he's saying. Braided hair in the original means ostentatious hair, noticeable hair, hair that would make you notice. Now, you've got to compare that, and we'll do this in the future, with what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, which is that a, a woman's hair is her glory. And what he's saying is if it's your glory, then it should reflect modesty and, and beauty, not attractiveness in order to lure men. You're also dealing with a, a culture that was um, uh, largely had uh, head coverings, um, cultural way to, to display modesty. So if you, if you didn't have a head covering, and by head covering, it's not like what our Amish friends do and put a little doily on their hair. That's not a head covering. A head, that's a hair covering. A head covering covers all of your head. 
and you still see that many times in the Middle East. He's saying, look, is your, is your attention to either men or I don't know, sometimes even to impress friends who are women, is the attention of your hair intended to grab attention? So what does that mean? He goes on, and gold or pearls, these were articles of jewelry used to call attention and communicate status. We're going to come back and qualify that in just a moment. Or costly garments, clothes worn to show how much they cost. In our vernacular, this is brand names for the purpose of showing off. Some of you are not old enough to remember, but some of us are. Happened to me, I think, in junior high school when uh, there was one company that redefined the entire fashion industry by putting its tag not on the back and inside, but on the outside and the front. Remember the company? Uh, uh, is it Lacoste? I, I, I saw it, it's all the same. With a little alligator? I remember, I remember wearing a collar shirt and being laughed at because I wasn't wearing an alligator shirt. Really? They put the tag on the outside so you could see what it was. Now, that's a pretty common thing today. I don't even know what half the tags mean. But that's a, kind of a parallel. Are we wearing things just to show people what they are? He's saying that dressing ostentatiously to draw attention to yourself, that's a problem. It had become a problem in the Ephesian church. Again, it's the issue of motivation. Now, is Paul actually saying that you should not ever dress with expensive things or nice things? Not at all. Not at all. Read the Song of Solomon. He talks about how beautiful she's clothed, how wonderful are her, her uh, adornments and her, her clothes, her earrings, her jewelry. It's beautiful. It just wasn't ostentatious. So whatever this girl in Song of Solomon was doing was beautiful, attractive, but not braggadocious. Wearing nice things isn't bad. I remember where I was. I remember the, the day my dad, I was, I was 18, he took me <clears throat> to, I needed some shoes, some dress shoes, and he took me down to the uh, Johnston & Murphy, which is a Tennessee company, but that's for another time. Uh, the Johnston & Murphy store, he says, you need to buy some shoes, Rick, and I'm going to pay half of them for you. They were $42 at that time. They're much more than that now. And he says, I want you to get some good shoes because if you get good shoes, these are going to last you 10 years. You're going to resell them and it's going to be a better investment than having to buy another pair of shoes every year or every other year. There's nothing wrong with having something nice and quality and good. But if you're getting those, it's the motivation. If you're getting those to say, hey, what kind of shoes are you wearing? Oh, you wanted to know about my shoes too? It's funny that you ask. That's not, that's, it's, it's motivation. Having nice, durable things isn't bad. In fact, it's probably good stewardship. It's an issue of the heart, and are we bragging or not? Also, we have to mention that there's an issue here of dressing like harlots did. As we know in 1 Corinthians 11, loose women would not wear hair head coverings. And they were advertising. That idea of advertising is so much of what our, the current fashion industry wants to do. Listen, mothers and fathers of girls, be involved with this. Don't just send girls to the, to the Gap or to Amber, Crombie, and Fitch with the credit card and say, hope you find something modest. And if they resist against it, you will see 
just how pervasive this issue has become in our culture. We'll get into more specifics of that next week. The problem, the issue here is, are we wearing, th- let's, let's go from the specific to the general. The issue here is, ladies, Paul says, are you wearing things that have people, men or women, direct attention to what you're wearing and it's a distraction from what's important. It makes them envious, coveting, angry, desirous. And especially, are you wearing things that cause men's mind to stumble? I hope I don't lose credibility with you as a Christian or as a pastor, but part of the reason for this series is I have walked into the the, the precious halls of Mission Road Bible Church and had to turn my head away from some women's dress here in our church. Paul says that's an issue and we got to deal with it. But it's not okay to have a standard here and a standard outside the church either. So, ladies, what associations does your dress suggest? Do you think that you have ever given a man in our ministry, a reason to be distracted from worship? It's a great question to discuss at lunch if you, have, if you have girls. If you have guys, have you been distracted from worship? Your sons and daughters, your friends, have you been distracted from worship by what someone has worn? Does the way that you dress as a woman invite men to explore your body with imagination because there's very little left to the imagination? Or are you obviously a child of God whose theology is on full display? Number three, these next two are very quick. Number three, clothing is to defer or submit to holy character. Clothing is to defer to holy character. Look at verse 10. But rather by means of good works as proper for women making a claim to godliness. Stop right there. He's saying you should be noticed, ladies, for your good works, for someone who makes a claim to godliness, that I am about Jesus and the gospel, and it matters in what I say and what I do and what I wear. I'm not just about looking good, looking attractive, trying to attract. The phrase that governs the whole discussion is in, right there in verse 10. As is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Is your claim to be godly? Do you want to be godly? Does, does what you wear reflect that you're godly. Again, there's nothing wrong with being fashionable or being attractive. Nothing wrong with that at all. Please, dress better than not. Please. The issue is, are we dressing, are you dressing in a way so as to specifically hook the mind of another to think better of you because of your clothing? Peter does the same thing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, Adorn your adornment, ladies. Your adornment must not merely be external. That's important. Not merely external. Meaning, you can't adorn yourself beautifully externally. It's okay to look beautiful. Looking beautiful is different than looking seductive. Looking beautiful is different than looking expensive. Then he gives some specifics, braiding the hair. In other words, doing your hair in such a way to attract, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Listen, I wear a, I wear a wedding ring, and, and, and I, I think it's made of gold. They told me it was when I bought it. So, uh, I, but it's pretty nondescript. 
I've seen my, some men wear things that are like, how much? Your first thought is, how much did that cost? And worse, they say, oh, it's not real. Then why are you making me try? Now it's deceptive and it's a whole problem. <laughs> Gold joy, putting on dresses, literally extravagant dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart. Let your adornment, listen, let who you are, what people notice, what people like about you, what people are attracted to you by, let it be the hidden person of the heart, which is the imperishable quality, here it is, of a gentle and quiet spirit. That doesn't mean that you, you, uh, you, you, you're, you're so gentle that you, you, you won't kill a fly or you're um, uh, so quiet that you won't say anything. It means that you have strength under control. That's the word for gentleness. You're meek. You have strength under control. And you have a quiet spirit, which is saying you have a humble spirit. You're not the loudest one in the room by what you wear. And then it all culminates in this, which is precious in the sight of God. Wow. Dressing modestly is precious to God. Do you not know that you've been bought with a price? Glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, remember that? You do know, ladies and men, you do know that when you dress yourself and look in the mirror, you are looking at Jesus' blood-bought body. It's his. It's his. By the way, it's his tent. Paul calls this a tent. And then he says in the same context, it's decaying and falling apart. I know if you're 18, you don't believe that. Trust me. You will one day. Outer man is declaring, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. It's precious in the sight of God. It's a heart comprised of gentle and quiet uh, humility that longs to produce good works proper for a woman who makes a claim to godliness. Her profession matches her expression, in other words. I love what the able um, Lutheran scholar Linsky wrote. He says, Paul is not insisting on drab dress. Even this may be worn vainly. The very drabness of it may be put on display. Well, I'm just being humble. Did you notice? Each according to our situation in life. Then he says this. There's, there's, there's context. We're going to talk about this next week. The, the, uh, the queen not being the same as her lady-in-waiting and the latter not being the same as her noble mistress. Each with due propriety as modesty and propriety will indicate to them both and when we attend divine services and appear in public, it ought to be to the glory of God. I know there's questions on that. That's what next week is for. We'll get specific then. Number four. Clothing is to reflect the truth of the gospel, gospel truth. Look back up in verse five. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and Men, the man, literally a man, a human, the divine human, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. That simple fact of the gospel regulates the way men and women respond in church with their clothing everywhere in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God, right? A woman who loves Jesus, the mediator, avoids immodesty because she refuses to distract from or misrepresent the purity of the gospel itself. 
To imagine a woman dressed improperly, witnessing is a self-contradiction. Can I tell you how Jesus died for your sins, rose from the grave, and gives you hope for eternal life and changes your life forever right now? And the person can't keep their eyes off certain parts of your anatomy because they're so exposed? Listen, this is not throwing rocks. I pray for you parents. God gave Kim and me three boys. Modesty is an issue in our houses as well. Getting them orderly, making them match, ironing clothes, washing clothes, not wearing clothes that were washed six months ago. Those things are all in play. But it's also teaching our boys to guard their eyes and their hearts around girls and women who aren't guarding theirs. And if you're a father or a mother of, of a daughter who's learning up, who's growing up learning how to dress, and you want her to reflect gospel truth, these conversations matter. And the default argument of this is what everyone else is wearing and this is the only thing you can buy in the store, those aren't good arguments. Because I could point to so many gloriously beautiful, attractive women in the body of Christ who have figured out a way to dress beautifully without being immodest. And for those ladies who are like that, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us the example. Thank you for being those examples. But make sure that that value, those values are, are, are passed on. Next week we're going to have a section of the sermon that's going to talk about what do you do when you see someone who's dressed immodestly. And the Bible answers that question. And you know the answer to that question, don't you? But that's for next week. That's what a preacher says when he runs out of time, out of material. Um, trust me, I haven't run out today. My prayer for you, especially ladies, is that you prize your high and holy testimony as a Christian woman rather than what people think about you and may be in awe of about you that's external and not internal. We're going to be specific about this next week. Let me encourage you, bring your, bring your kids. This is, not, this is rated PG, parental guidance, and it should be guided by parental influence from God's word. But if we don't talk about these things, I can assure you the devil and the culture and the society and the fashion industry is willing to talk about them and does it every day.